Well, good evening to you all. Uh, it's a joy to be with you now. If you will, go and turn to Numbers chapter 2. Uh, Numbers chapter 2 is where we'll be looking today. Uh, Dallas finished off last week, uh, left us with Numbers 1, so we'll be picking up right after that. Uh, throughout Scripture, there are many complex truths uh, that are brought up and explained. One can think of predestination, uh, penal substitution, transubstantiation, all sorts of things um, that are brought up in Scripture, very complex topics that require a lot of thought and require a lot of intricacy in the language. In Numbers chapter 2, we will not be looking at one of those passages uh, that speaks very uh, headily about uh, very complex things. Instead, uh, there are more simple truths. Uh, That does not mean that they're less in importance or in value, um, but they are simple truths uh, for us to meditate on. Uh, So let me go ahead and read Numbers chapter 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. The chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab, his company as listed being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar, his company as listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Helon, His company is listed being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Eliezer, the son of Shadur. His company is listed being 46,500. And those to camp next to him shall be of the tribe of Simeon, the chief of the people of Simeon being Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. His company is listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Reuel. His company is listed being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out, with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As the camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Mehud. His company is listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, the son of Pedajur. His company is listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin being Abidan, the son of Gideonai. His company is listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies. The chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. His company is listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher, Pegiel, the son of Okram. 
His company is listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being a hero, the son of Anan. His company is listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we approach your word tonight, uh, we desire to be like the blessed man of Psalm 1, who meditates on your word day and night, who is like a tree planted by streams of water that you fruit in season. We long to look into your word and behold wondrous things, and behold wondrous truths for us to ponder and to treasure. So as we come to Numbers, please help us uh, to see these things. Please reveal um, these truths to us. And please help us to uh, see not only truths for us to ponder, but actions for us to imitate um, and commands for us to follow. And please help us to follow those as we go from here. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, being newly married, I've only about seven months. Uh, one of the joys that I've had is starting a new home. Uh, Emily and I, my wife, live in an apartment. And one of the things that we've done uh, that I was pretty eager to get done was to get a bookshelf set up in my apartment. Uh, so finally, after a couple of months of being in this apartment, we get a bookshelf, and I set it up. I set in all my books. Being a comic book fan, uh, I have a large amount of comic books, some of them very pretty uh, on covers with very good artwork on it. So I thought as a good centerpiece, those comics would sit you know, fairly high on the shelf and give a good image for everyone to look at. Meanwhile, not meaning to communicate anything, I put my uh, scriptural books, my Christian books, shelf lowest, not thinking much of it, not wanting to com communicate anything. But uh, we have some friends over a little while later, and uh, I draw attention to the bookshelf saying, hey, isn't this bookshelf quite appealing? Doesn't it look pretty awesome? I'm pretty proud of it. And what is the first thing that he brings up? I see your theology books are below your comic books. You know? uh, is that indicating the order of importance that you place on these things? Do you value your comics more than uh, your theology books? That is just to say that I did not need to tell him anything about that bookshelf. Uh, he merely looked at it, and by the way it was organized, he saw something, and he concluded something about it. In Numbers 2, uh, we see the same thing. Um, whereas my communication was unintentional, uh, God orders the tribes of Israel very intentionally. Uh, he puts them in an order that is intentional. He puts them around something uh, that is intentional. So tonight, what we'll be looking at are those truths that are communicated by just the organization of the tribes of Israel. They have uh, been freed from Egypt, from the slavery that they had there, and they are starting their march 
from Egypt to the Promised Land, uh, from Mount Sinai, and God orders them, um, and there are things being communicated here. So that is what we will look at tonight. Uh, first off, we'll look at the center of the camp, and second off, we'll look, or, we'll look at the order of the tribes. Uh, so if you follow, if you followed along uh, with the scripture reading, you'll know that the way that the camp is arranged is in a square. Uh, one commentator pointed out that it's often said that King Arthur had a round table so that each uh, tri- each soldier would be of equal importance as the rest. There would be uh, no order hierarchy of them. Uh, they would all be equal. That is not how uh, this camp is set up. It's in a square. There is an order. Uh, there are directions that receive more importance. And there is a center of this uh, that receives more importance. So what is at the center? You have three tribes on each side, uh, the east side, the south side, the west side, and the north side. And then in the center is the tabernacle. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the tabernacle is a word for tent. Um, A tent of meeting is what it's also called. And it consisted of several layers of fabric, uh, several wooden poles. It was overlaid with gold uh, in the center. But more than that, more than just a tent, it was a proto-temple. It was like the pre-temple, the temple where God would dwell. Um, The tabernacle is kind of the precursor to that. So not only was it this tent, but it was ornate on the inside. There were um, pictures of angels uh, interwoven into the fabric on the inside. There were ornaments of gold inside. There was the Ark of the Covenant inside. Uh, This was where God's presence would dwell. And God says so himself uh, in Exodus 25, verse 8. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The reason for this tabernacle was not just so that God could be on earth uh, in a special presence, but that he could be with his people in a special way. So what we see is not primarily these people encamped around a tent, and that tent being in the center, being the primary importance, although that is communicated, but more, it is God dwelling with his people. Uh, We see in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, verse 11 through 12, God talking about this uh, tabernacle. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, if you pay attention to that language, what is he saying? He's saying, I will walk among you. I will be your God. I will dwell with you. You shall be my people. What's going on here is a return to the Garden of Eden. Right? In the garden, Adam would walk with God. Um, God was walking in the cool of the day when he found Adam and Eve in their sin. So here, God is talking about when his tabernacle is with them, uh, he will walk among them and there will be this good relationship between man and God again, between God's people and him. Where, the, where man had been banished from the garden, banished from God's presence, he will come back and will be with them again. Uh, this is such a great picture of grace. Um, we often have this conception of God, this way of thinking that God is obligated to do things to us. Here, God is not obligated to dwell with these people. 
Adam and Eve had earned their banishment from God. They had earned that separation. But God is such a loving God that he was not content with that. Um, he was not content with being separated with his people separating themselves from him. So he decides to enter into another covenant uh, with Moses, with his people, that he would dwell with them, would extend his favor on them. Uh, nevertheless, Israel was supposed to be this Garden of Eden. They were supposed to be this picture of perfect harmony between man and God, where they are interacting perfectly. Uh, they would be keeping all of God's commands. But as we see uh, throughout the rest of the book of Numbers, tragically, they do not uh, live up to this picture. Um, they sin. They rebel. Uh, what's supposed to be harmony, uh, in fact, looks more like a dysfunctional family with kids fighting against the parents and disobeying. This was not the peak of human relationship and human proximity to God. Some people act as if being alive during this time would have been great. You know, we would uh, be with God, we would see him doing miracles, we would see a cloud of fire by night and a cloud of pillar by day leading the peoples. But it was not perfect. This was not the peak of human relationship with God. And that way of thinking is indeed a, a lack of gratefulness for the privilege that we experience. Um, if you look uh, in this chapter as well, you'll see that the Levites are in the center of the camp as well. They are surrounding the tabernacle. And what that forms is kind of a barrier the tabernacle was not open for access to all the people of Israel. Uh, the priests, the Levites, they could go and minister at the temple, but all the other Israelites could not go to the tabernacle. Uh, there was this barrier between them. Furthermore, there was a wall around the tabernacle uh, that separated them as well. So those who were not priests had no hope of seeing the beauty that was the tabernacle, of seeing uh, the images in it and the ornaments in it that would be representative and illustrative of heaven and of the Garden of Eden. They had no hope of that. As well, God's dwelling with them, his being in the tabernacle, his being in their midst, was contingent on their keeping the law, um, which as we'll see again through the rest of Numbers, they could not do and we cannot do. Uh, that passage in Leviticus 26, where he said that he would make his dwelling among them. If you go back to verse 3 of chapter 26 of Leviticus, there's that conditional phrase, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will dwell with you. Um, the people did not keep his statutes. Um, and indeed, we'll see uh, many of them will fall. Uh, they will be destroyed in the wilderness because of their disobedience. This is all why it is so precious uh, to us now, and we should be so thankful uh, that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6 uh, that we, meaning all those who believe in Christ, who believe in him as their Savior, he says we are the temple of the living God. Um, again, the tabernacle was before the temple, but it would be uh, replaced by the temple. What Paul is saying is that we are the temple of the living God. 
And he's not speaking of the Levites. Um, he's speaking of all Christians everywhere. Um, he's speaking of all those who have a genuine confession. There are not distinctions. It's not just a particular group of Christians who are the temple. Uh, it is all Christians. And we are not close to the temple. We are the temple. We have God dwelling in us uh, now. As well, we do not have to fear God leaving us um, because all his dwelling with us is no longer conditional on our keeping the law perfectly. Um, he has paid for that all through Jesus dying on the cross for us. And Abraham and Moses and David all longed to see this time. Um, you can think of David saying, "Blessed or uh, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That being in the presence of God continually, um, that was something that they all longed to see. And we are so privileged uh, to be a part of now. But this is not just a truth for us to receive and to um, consume only. Uh, we should be recipients of it. We should glory in it. And we should be so grateful for it. But there is also an implication for how we are to live. Uh, being this temple, being this people that God has graciously um, dwelt with. Uh, if we look back at 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul has said that we are the temple of God, what, he's, what does he go on to say? Since we have these promises, um, he had just quoted uh, promises that God would dwell with his people, that he would make his dwelling among them. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As well in 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 14 through 15, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. It is always worth noting, these are people on our side of the cross, after Jesus has died, after he's been risen, after he has uh, saved us, and they are calling us to live a certain way. We are to be holy, we are to cast off all sin, we are to cleanse ourselves, we are to uh, cast off our former ignorance. And this passage that Peter quotes, you shall be holy for I am holy, comes from the book of Leviticus. Paul and Peter both had a very robust covenant theology. They understood how Jesus had ushered in a new covenant, not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. But they still urge Christians and command Christians to live a certain way. Um, they did not throw out this command saying, we are saved regardless of our sin, so we can live um, with no uh, enmity with our sin. They did not say that. Uh, instead, they say, we are the temple, um, the temple where God would dwell, the temple that was supposed to be holy, the tabernacle that was supposed to be ornate. Since we are that, we have to be holy, as our God is holy. Uh, so we have a great encouragement in this truth that God was at the center of the Israelites' camp, that he was dwelling with them. Um, we have a great encouragement that he loves us and has graciously um, made a way for us to dwell with him uh, despite our sin, but it's still a call for us uh, to work out our salvation, um, 
to cleanse ourselves from sin and to strive to be holy. So that's what we see uh, from the center of the camp, how uh, the tribes are all organized around the camp. What we'll be looking at next is the order of the tribes. Um, the tribes are ordered in a way that is maybe uh, counterintuitive. If you go back and look at the census, um, you'll see in chapter 1 of Numbers, you'll see that Reuben is listed first. Um, and then it goes on in birth order. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, of Israel, so he's listed first. And then you just go down in birth order uh, for the rest of them. But here, um, you have to know the people of Israel are marching east. Uh, they're going from Egypt, from Mount Sinai, to their promised land of Canaan. So the direction of importance is the east. Uh, sometimes we, I think, um, nowadays think of north as the principal direction. You know, whoever's north, you have the north star, and uh, that's what's prominent. But for this uh, situation, the east was the prominent direction. So if you read uh, in verse 3 of Numbers chapter 2, it says, Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah. Now this should be surprising because Reuben was the firstborn. Uh, this um, placement of prestige and prominence, you would think, would go to the firstborn, uh, but it doesn't. Nor does it go even to the secondborn or to the thirdborn, Simeon and Levi, as one would expect. Why is this? Well, you can go back and look at Genesis 49. Um, in this chapter, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he is giving blessings to his uh, 12 sons. And what he uh, says in chapter 49, uh, verses 3 through 4, is that Reuben's preeminence, his uh, importance as the firstborn, is being taken away. Why was that done? Because he had sinned against his father. Uh, earlier on in Genesis 35, you see a tragic account where he uh, commits this sexual sin uh, with his father's concubine, uh, which was a power grab. So his preeminence is taken away. The second born, um, Simeon, and, well, the second born and third born, Simeon and Levi, they were also punished. Uh, their preeminence was taken away because they had slaughtered uh, Hamor and Shechem's people in Genesis 34, 25 through 31. So we see that Judah, the fourth born, of no uh, particular natural importance is in the place of prominence. And we can trace that back, why he is the one uh, that is up there, to Jacob's blessing. He gives Judah the kingship. Uh, in chapter in Genesis 49, verse 10, he says, the scepter shall never depart from Judah. Now, why was the kingship given to Judah? Uh, you can think of that, the first Second and third born were ruled out, so it should go. So it should go to the fourth born. Um, but there's also a question as to why Judah is not um, excluded. It is not as though Judah was the perfect son to be imitated. Uh, he, as well, was guilty of sexual sin that is uh, recounted in Genesis, and he was part of the uh, cabal, like everyone else, that sold Joseph into slavery. So why is Judah? the leader 
of the people of Israel? Why is he put in this place of prominence? And I think uh, one thing you can say is that it's just simply God's electing purpose. Um, He bestows his grace on those whom he chooses to, not on the basis of works. Um, But in another sense, I think we can look at Genesis 44 and see another reason why he would be the first of these tribes. Uh, Genesis 44 is the account where um, Joseph has been sold into slavery, but he has risen to prominence in Egypt. He's become uh, the second in command of all of Egypt. And there's a famine, so Jacob's brothers come, who had sold him into slavery, come and seek food from him in Egypt, not knowing that he is uh, the same man who's the second in command. Uh, So through this account, they interact with him, and they um, get food from him. And what happens in the end is uh, Joseph frames them. Uh, He frames his youngest son, his youngest brother, Benjamin, by putting a cup, his cup, in his sack and sending them off. Well, then uh, Joseph tells his servant, go run after them, uh, go Tell them, why have you repaid me evil for good? And they come back and say, Lord, we, we don't know what has happened. Uh, if, if one of us is found to be guilty, then let him be cut off, let him be killed. So they inspect the sacks uh, of food and grain, and they find the silver cup in uh, Benjamin's sack. So what, uh, what Judas sees now is that Benjamin's life is forfeit. He's going to be a servant in the house of Joseph, in the house of uh, Pharaoh forever. Uh, So if we go to Genesis 44, verses 30 through 34, we'll see uh, what Judas says after that. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And pay attention to this. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What you see here is Judah giving himself up for his brother. He says, do not take Benjamin. Take me instead as a servant. Let him go. Um, Even though the cup had been found in Benjamin's sack, Judah says, take me as well. This, um, This image this action would become characteristic uh, or should have become characteristic of the kings of Israel after that point, the kings that would descend from Judah's line. Uh, They should have been kings that would imitate this uh, in their love and their ruling, but we know from 1 Kings and uh, 2 Kings and 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel and the Chronicles, all that, the kings did not do that. But we know that there was a king who did come and did imitate Judah act of righteousness and that is our king um, Jesus he came and for us who are guilty 
um, he switched places with us. Uh, the cross that we should have been uh, hung on, he took for us, um, bearing the wrath of God for us. Um, and maybe you can see that. Uh, maybe you can see that Jesus is a second and better Judah in some ways. Um, but there's also another lesson for us to learn here, which is that our king has done this, and we as well are supposed to do that. Uh, if you go and look at 1 John 3.16, uh, John is talking about um, the love of God. He's talking about how we are to live as believers, how we can know that we are believers. And in verse 16 he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The brothers meaning the church. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has done this for us, but that is not where the story ends. Um, just like God has dwelt with us and chosen to dwell with us, and we are to be holy as a result of that, Jesus has laid down his life for us, and we are to do that for our brothers and sisters. So I want to challenge you, when you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you look at your church uh, members, your fellow uh, body of Christ believers, do you see people that you would lay down your life for? Do you see people that you would imitate Jesus in that action? I think many of us could say, you know, maybe for some of them we would, uh, but for some of them maybe we harbor grudges, maybe, maybe we have not forgiven them. Um, but we need to, we are commanded to. This is the love that Christ has shown us, and this is the love we are to show to our brothers. In closing, uh, let me direct your attention to Revelation 21, chapter 10 through 13, if you'll turn there with me. We do live in a privileged time uh, where we can come to God and he can dwell within us if we believe and repent from our sins. But we as well, uh, just as the Israelites were not um, in the perfect situation of relationship with God, uh, neither are we. We still do not see God face to face. But we'll see in verses 10 through 13. Let me go and read those. Uh, this is John speaking of visions that he's being shown. He says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So the picture of the new Jerusalem, the new creation that is coming when Christ returns, borrows the imagery uh, from Numbers chapter 2. You had three tribes on each side um, for, the camp, for the encampment of Israel. You have three tribes on each side for this heavenly city. So just as God was physically present um, with 
the Israelites. That is what we are anticipating, um, being a part of and getting to experience when Christ comes back. Uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We see through a mirror dimly now. God does dwell within us, but we do not see him face to face. We do not walk with him as Adam did. Um, but we do look forward to that. We know that that day is coming. As we wait for that, uh, as we wait to be fully known, to see our Savior, uh, the God and man we most adore uh, face to face, let us live in a way that honors the calling to which we've been called. Let's be holy and seek holy living um, as the temple of God. Let us love one another as we have been loved. And let us anticipate um, a day when we will be free from sin and uh, rejoicing with our Lord. Let's pray. Father, it truly is great to think on what you have done for us. That we who cannot keep your law perfectly, uh, that we who have not kept your law perfectly, would still get to enjoy uh, your presence now and fully in the future. What a great God you are to extend such grace to such sinners. Please help us to obey your commands. Give us strength through your spirit um, to cast off all sin and all hindrances. And give us strength to love one another as you have loved us. As Israel was supposed to be a picture of Eden on earth, a picture of perfect relationship between God and man, let us be the same um, to a world around us. We ask this all in Jesus' name.